gold back below $1,800. Oh, it's not easy to be a gold investor, but maybe some consolation. I did see a YouTube thumbnail that said Rick Rule is buying gold and silver stocks, so there may be light at the end of the tunnel there. He does tend to be good at measuring sentiment. And I was looking, I mean, Fortuna, one of my sort of gauges of the, say, silver stocks, it was down in like the $4.75 region after being up at $12 earlier this year. So they have been beat up, the silver gold mining stocks. I mean, you have to have some trepidation wading into that area as, you know, it again, like, we're talking like 10 years here. Newmont's at $55. Barrick, in, on, these are on the U.S. markets. Barrick's at $19.79. Franco Nevada, at least, is at 141 But even Franco hasn't really done anything since, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. So, you know, a year and a half ago when we had that run-up in gold after COVID – and then everything went back down, then it went back up, and now it's kind of half back down. So let's see. A tricky trade, but I think it does tempt, doesn't it? It is a tempting trade, especially as everything is kind of, you know, seemingly overvalued right now. And and that's what I like about gold over Bitcoin, and I do prefer Bitcoin. But what I like about gold, what it can't do, is you can hold gold in your hand. Like if something were to happen to the internet or, you know, there, there's something irrefutable about gold. It, when you hold it, it's pretty, it has lasted 5,000 years. We cannot discount that. So I think an interesting time to consider these things, you know, despite the drop below $1,800, despite the drop in silver here, you do get the sense that there is a bit of bullishness that is starting to enter a very bearish mining stock sector. Looking at the 10-year bond, it's up at 1.655. So it is starting to be at the upper range of recent yields that we've been looking at. Uh, And they had fallen from earlier yesterday after, and it says here, after the Powell renomination. So Jay Powell was renominated to the Federal Reserve. Now, this brings me to a small point that kind of surprised me a little bit. I was listening to a commentary, I think it was on Real Vision. Interesting guy. I don't remember his name. But he was basically saying how, you know, the Fed's biggest fear is wage inflation. And I thought, is that really their biggest fear after wages have remained stagnant for decades, since the 70s? And now they're concerned that we might have a little too much wage inflation. And it really just sort of made me think like maybe we do need to rethink this whole Federal Reserve thing. Maybe this isn't such a great idea. Maybe it's not working out so well for people. Uh, Because if that's our biggest concern, that wages are going up after three decades, then I really just have to question the whole thing. And just wonder, like, who is this really working for? And you guys can look at your academic papers. You can have your abstractions and talk in your think tanks all you want. If wages are stagnant for three decades and your biggest concern is that wages are going up, perhaps you should reexamine your first principles and what you are doing here. Just a thought. So, you know, but it uh, just really I was taken aback. Let's just say that. Anyway, the Global Mining Symposium was fabulous. I had a nice talk with Anthony Malowski. Anthony Vaccaro interviewed Mark Bristow. And there were lots of other big segments, the Rare Earth Element segment. So we have lots of exciting stuff to present to you for those that missed it in the coming episodes. So I am not going to go over the Global Mining Symposium stories because we're actually going to take them one at a time into the Christmas season here. And we are approaching... Black Friday and Thanksgiving, US American Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving for all our American listeners. And, you know, I have American friends here in Berlin, and so I'll be going to a dinner. But I tell you, you got to be careful. I, I almost don't want to go, even though I can't wait to go. 
my semi-rich friend loves to have a fantastic, you know, turkey, ham. He goes over the top with that. You know, Americans love Thanksgiving. So I want to go, but man, these COVID cases in Germany are flying through the roof. They are, you know, you had the health minister out there saying you're either going to be, by Christmas, you're either going to be vaccinated, recovered, or dead. That's what Jens Spahn was saying. So pretty dramatic stuff here, and everything remains open. I was going for a walk with a friend outside yesterday. The bars are, the bars are, you know, on a Monday night, there were a fair amount of people in the bars, doors closed, no masks, and I just thought this is not going to end well. But maybe you think different. It's become a political controversial issue, so we're not going to wade too deep into it. Anyway, we have a very exciting show here. Henry Lazenby, our multimedia producer and reporter, has interviewed Ross McIlroy from Fish and Uranium. And I mean, Fish and Uranium, I used to own that stock way back in the good old days in 2011, 2012. And there was some controversy around fishing for a while. It's, I think Dev Randawa. And uh, I mean, I don't know what it was. And maybe it's just unhappy shareholders. I don't know what the controversy was. Dev is, was always very nice and gracious to me at PDAC. I don't know if it's because I was a reporter or just he's a really nice guy. But there was controversy in the past with uh, fishing, but I believe he's left the company, Dev. And and yeah, so we got Ross, and uh, Ross seems to think that the company is on the right setting. They have a lot more institutional investment. So you'll get a very in-depth, almost like if you're interested in the geology and if you're like almost an analyst for uh, fishing uranium, you're going to want to listen to this because Henry doesn't pull any punches as far as the nitty-gritty of this project. So that is coming up. We also have Kim Tyler in our CEO spotlight coming right up from Stratabound Minerals. And he's got a project in California, the Fremont Project, and a couple of projects in Canada. So we are about to take a look at that very interesting interview and some great stories. So hope you're having a wonderful time as we enter this very busy time of year. Markets just remain, you know, kind of waiting for that Santa Claus rally. Let's cross our fingers that we get it. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Kim Tyler and Stratabound Minerals in our next CEO Spotlight. And joining me today for our CEO Spotlight is Kim Tyler, President and CEO of Stratabound Minerals. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Adrian. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you. So from what I understand, you have a few projects and they seem to be North American based. Tell us, what are you working on? What are you excited about? What's going on at Stratabound Minerals? Well, we're most excited with our recent acquisition we just concluded in October is the Fremont Project in California. And I'm going to say quickly that we've been an exploration company for the past five years. We're really mine operators and builders, and that's our background. And we've been looking for an asset, a string of assets. We're early stage two operations. So it takes a bit longer to find a nice brownfields operation like Fremont in California. Follow the footsteps of Equinox down there. We've been looking at California for five years and finally acquired a property at Fremont. But that's that's the one we're looking for. It's got nearly a million ounces of 43-101 ounces on it. That catapulted us from zero ounces prior to this October acquisition to to that amount of ounces. And that's where we want to build forward and get out on the ground and, and push that forward to production. And uh, finance our company are, are, are uh, exciting, but uh, but uh, longer term assets through our own cash flows. Interesting. So I assume that is a gold property. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So historically, uh, Stratabound's been around since 1986. It's been in base metals in New Brunswick. It's got a long history of exploration there. But we shifted gears in 2017 and brought more people on board, and it's been focused on gold for the most part. We still have some legacy copper cobalt uh, with a bit of gold in New Brunswick, a small project there, uh, which has a, a custom milling opportunity, toll milling opportunity. We, we think that's good, but really we're focusing on gold, and we're a lot of experience in gold and a variety of uh, commodities, but gold's been the core of what we do the best. Okay, so tell me about this Fremont project then a little bit more. I feel like I've heard of it, and it's based in yes. California. And, and tell me about how do you feel about working in California? I mean, some people might take a pause and think, oh, well, is that going to cause Whoa. a challenge for you? I love that question because that's more of a myth. I think there's truth around that maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, the, the 
notion of California, like we have BC, if you, if you think the local people are are opposed to mining, and that's and that, that's the thing that mining has just got to work to, to turn around anywhere. But I'm an Ontario boy. I've worked at Inco when I was 18, and I live in Sudbury still now. It's my home. But Ontario and, and Canadian jurisdictions where the regulatory regimes are all provincial at the provincial seat. In California, they start off at the county seat. So you're dealing with the local people. They have a vested interest in seeing who their industrial neighbors are going to be. And it doesn't mean they take shortcuts. Their, their regulatory requirements are no less stringent than Ontario. But in, in Ontario, or I should say in Canada, provincially, it becomes politicized. And, and that's where mining's gone from a place where it's a quiet industry that brought metals and minerals that everybody needed and, and manufactured. But down there, it's, it's, it's less so because you're dealing with the local group and there's still those, those things that might happen. But Equinox is an example of things moving forward. I'm going to say last thing is we've got three excellent California professionals, uh, geologists that are with us. And one fellow is the, the, the master permitter in California. He permits not just gold mines or any mines. He's permitted chemical plants in places. So he's uh, he's a terrific asset. He'll be, he's in our advisory team, which we, uh, the news going forward, will be commenting, uh, posting who these guys are on our team. So we've got some really qualified people down there that are going to get us through it. But I say that it's gotten tougher. And I think all my colleagues will say that anywhere in the rest of the world, it's gotten tougher and tougher uh, permitting wise. And California has pretty much you know stayed, stayed the course in terms of how they manage it as anywhere else in the United States. It's almost like the rest of the world is catching up to California in terms uh, of the uh, permitting and just like, you know, the stringency with which they look at uh, their local mining company. Well, exactly. And I think the pendulum always swings one way or another. And I think it's really swung way too far. And that's me personally. You may find others. But we know that it's taking a long, long time and a lot of scrutiny and oversight on mining projects. And that's, we know, I mean, the one example of high politicization would be the ring of fire and I, I think it's a terrific opportunity but it's it's been it's going to go on forever where it's it's got less to do with what makes sense and more to do with politics sure i mean yeah and we could go on and, and about that yes. that's almost a whole other topic but now yeah, pebbles another as... one i mean you could look at these pebbles another one you might wonder but there you go oh well pebble yeah i mean northern dynasty we make fun of the soap opera of the Northern Dynasty soap opera there. Now, tell me just about, before we move on from Fremont, like how big is this thing? Do you guys have like a clue as to how many, I don't know, ounces oh, yes. a year you might be able to get out of this thing? Or Oh, well, uh, yeah, we certainly have a big clue on that. Uh, we aren't going to publish it because it's going to get ahead of the story here, but we've done our own, uh, there's there's about 20 million tons on the books right now. And it's it's uh, low grade at the, the indicated about 526,000 ounces at 1.6 grams per ton. It's, it's viewed as an open pit. It was mined historically underground. This is what I like about California for opportunity. Uh, a lot of the mines in, in the Western US shut down in World War II at $35 an ounce and never reopened. And in those days, they were operating uh, old style, old timey methods and high grade. And there's two veins, foot wall, hanging wall that they mined historically at a quarter ounce, which was standard. But what was left behind is we're finding out in, in the Abitibi and, and uh, Cisco's making great waves up there in, in, in the, uh, Quebec. And then also the Hollinger open pit that uh, Newmont's operating for a long time. These are the low grade that sits around the high grade. And that's when we see the same thing down in California. So, uh, so that, that's the opportunity we're looking at down there as well, expanding up. But I, what I say, 526,000 ounces indicated, about 450 some thousand ounces inferred. We believe there's way more than that. The mining went down to 700 meters and the block model only goes down half that deep. So we see with more drilling, we can expand on the ounces, huge. But really where we're targeting here is we really want to get going on very small scale, low risk mining opportunity, like almost a bulk sample, and then build that out into a bigger operation over time. Very, very interesting. So you have some properties in Canada. Uh, tell us yes. about those. What, what's going on over here? Well, uh, again, getting back to... Uh, Stratabound, the new Stratabound in 2017, I had been working for uh, another company as a consultant for a few years. And my one job was uh, manager of North American uh, uh, evaluations from East Coast to West Coast. And I really came across a property I really liked in the Eastern Yukon. A lot of excitement in the Western Yukon with white gold and so on and the coffee zone. That's in the Western Yukon. But in the Eastern Yukon, it's quiet. But everywhere there's ground work, there's gold. And the market got quiet anyway. But I, we, I, one thing intrigued me huge is a property owned by prospectors about 20 kilometers north of the Three Aces project. And the Three Aces was a 5,401 gram per ton discovery in 2003. So this is another new area people aren't looking in. And that's kind of where we're going is, is places don't people don't look in. We picked that property with prospectors in, in 2018. We've raised a million. We've spent about three or four million in there now uh, drilling 
and it's got a highway right through it. It's called a highway. It's a gravel road, but it's an all-season road. It goes right through the middle of the property. Uh, and we're, we're, we've got results up to 95 grams per ton. Actually, 320 grams per ton lying on surface from float samples and drilling up to 60 grams and trenching up to 95 grams. So it's an exciting project. But as I point out to you, we're miners and we're looking at what are we doing this for? Are we out there to to continually publish these results and, and when markets are weak and, and hopefully you get catch at the right time? We really want to be operators and understanding that it takes a long time to get uh, an exploration project, an early stage one like this one, to production. Is why we, we've uh, we've moved towards uh, to acquiring an asset that we can get into production in short order. We also have a nice project that I had to comment on. I think you really ought to look at Puma Exploration. If you're looking at Stratabound, look at Puma, and look at the results they're getting in an area nobody's been looking at very much except prospectors. And if you can't beat the prospectors for finding these deposits that that the barracks and the Newmonts are going to want one day, but uh, they recently published a result of five and a half grams over 50 meters. And if that was anywhere else. That stock should have gone through the roof, I would think, but but they got sold down 17% on that news, and I still don't understand, but that's our quirky <laughs> market. We're right on strike with them. Uh, we're very early stage. We've done some soil sampling. We were thinking we're in, the, in, a, in a belt of rocks that will take you right out to newfound golds, the same rocks, same age, uh, same kind of structures, and it goes right across the ocean to uh, to Kurganalt and Dalradian. In the, if you follow our website, you'll see a lot of people have that one slide that shows the same geology all the way across uh, these deposits being formed at the same time about 350 million years ago. Interesting. So when you say you're operators, does that kind of mean that as far as your, if we were to kind of look at your mission as a company, you want to be a, a big mining company or at least a mid-tier mining company, right? Like you're not looking for to just make some fancy drill holes and no, we're not uh, get taken holes. out. Yeah. <laughs> We, we're, we're well aware that people are putting out lots of nice drill holes and not getting rewarded for the market on it. And that's not what we want to do anyway. I mean, the market should should do its job and whatever it does, it does. We can't control that. But we do know the things we can control are uh, what I like to see is, is is harvesting ounces or whatever metals, pounds of metal out of the ground and and providing a decent cash flow in the company, maybe down the road dividends. We've all worked for big companies in the past. I've been with Rio Tinto as a mine manager for Rio Tinto company for five years. Two of us uh, were with Royal Oak at the very beginning and, and Royal Oak has got, you love it or hate it, but it was nearly, it was a very big company with 1400 people and several mines around North America operating and, and got caught in a pinch and down it went. But we've seen the big, the good and the bad. Uh, Cominco was a company some of us have worked for, and it's a, it was a wonderful company that got taken out by tech. It's one of the best companies going to work for. Some of the best people have come out of that. So we know how to operate mines. We know how to generate cash flow. We know how to operate them efficiently and effectively. We've been there, done that. Uh, getting back into exploration in the latter part of our careers has been fun. We don't necessarily have to do this for the money anymore, but we do it because it's fun. And the next thing we'd love to do is say, hey, you know, there's a niche here of uh, companies that the big companies won't look at anything less than a million ounces and they're gobbling each other up. We hear about mergers and acquisitions at the top of the food chain all over the place. You don't hear enough news about the little guys doing it like us, like we just did. That needs to be done too. We had two companies. Uh, one was stuck with cash, without cash, had a nice asset. And we had some good assets, but not near stage enough. We had cash. So we put them together and that made good sense. Now we're going to build because we see the, the nuance and the gold carts, some of that were down the road. There was a way, somebody started those companies from nowhere. And Rob McEwen did that with Gold Corp and the old Dickinson mine in the beginning. So if he can do it, we should have a lot of fun trying to get there. We may never get the whole way there, but it would certainly be fun uh, building the next uh, mid-tier producer and see where it goes from there. Well, it's like they say, skate to where the puck is going. And because, uh, yep. I mean, I see Barrick and I see Agnico. And listening to their conference calls, there's a strong emphasis that the strategy is exploration, and particularly in Canada, and I guess North America is probably seen as, U.S. is probably seen as, if not as good, nearly as good. So it sounds like you guys are kind of positioning yourself for where things might go. So thank you, Kim Tyler, President and CEO of Stratabound Minerals. Could you tell us your website as well as your ticker? Uh, our website is www.stratabound.com and okay. our ticker is SB on the TSXV and we're also listed on the OTCQB uh, listing in the States under SBMIF. Excellent. Kim Tyler, thank you for joining us and come talk to us again. I'd love to. Uh, we'll keep watching because uh, we're, 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 we're plan we have plans to move forward for sure. Thank you very much. And thank you to Kim Tyler, President and CEO of Stratabound Minerals for sponsoring this week's CEO Spotlight, turning to the website, 
Newcrest says its growth strategy is America's focused. And this is by Henry Lazenby. Australia-based Newcrest Mining is building critical mass in Canada with the second significant acquisition announced as the mining major sets its sights on organic and mergers and acquisition-based growth in the Americas. Managing Director and CEO Sandeep Biswas tells the Northern Miners, in 2019, Newcrest took a 70% interest in Imperial Metals, Red Chris Copper Gold Mine, in northern British Columbia, and more recently, the $3.84 billion acquisition, Canadian, of Predium Resources announced on November 9th to gain control of its high-grade Bruce Jack operation in British Columbia. And you also hear Barrick's Mark Bristow talk about the focus on Canada, and Agnico is Canada-focused, or at least exploration-focused with most of their projects in Canada. So quite interesting, this you know, Canada is definitely attracting the top mining companies, at least the top gold mining companies, which is quite interesting. Quote, Newcrest specializes in what I call tier one deposits. End quote, Biswas says in an interview, we have a clear strategy where we want to continue to gain exposure to tier one deposits, which in our terminology is typically 300,000 plus ounces per year equivalent, comprising copper, if available, and gold. Now, I don't have Mark Bristow's definition of tier one deposit in front of me, but I don't think it's the same as this. I don't remember anything being mentioned about copper. If you recall that article we recently covered, I can't remember. I think it was the conference call. Bristow was saying that he came up with the term tier one deposit and it had a very specific definition. So it's kind of hilarious to hear the Newcrest CEO come out and say, well, actually, this is what I mean by tier one. So an interesting little tidbit there. Further, the company has a penchant for long-lived assets, typically 15 years or longer, and assets also must be low cost with the ability to go into the first quartile range. I don't know what that means, according to Biswas. With the ability to go into the first quartile range, feel free to leave a comment if you know what that means. Uh, Quote, if you look at Bruce Jack, it fits all the criteria And it's in a tier one jurisdiction as well, which gives us some geographical spread and reduces the geographical risk as well. And the other thing that's good about Bruce Jack is its exploration potential. I mean, we are explorers. It's in our DNA, said Bisvas. So you can read the whole thing on northernminer.com. We're just scratching the surface there. And continuing on, we have another move by Australia's Evolution Mining. So... Not sure what's going on in Australia, but they are on a tear. I mean, to be perfectly fair, if we saw China making all the moves that Australia is doing, we would be kind of, all our antennae would be up. Uh, Here's another one. Glencore to divest interest in Ernest Henry Mine with sale to Australia's Evolution Mining. It's by Daniel Sekulik. Swiss commodity giant Glencore is selling its stake in the Ernest Henry Copper Gold Mine in Queensland, Australia to Evolution Mining for $916.5 million in cash. I mean, also to be fair to Australia, I mean, the mine is in Australia, so I don't know if we need to feel too concerned about that. But nevertheless, it's pretty interesting all the moves Australian miners are making. Evolution will pay Glencore $800 million Australian up front and the remaining $200 million Australian after 12 months. The companies believe the transaction will close in early January 2022. Under the terms of the transaction, Evolution will assume full ownership of the mine. It has also entered into a copper concentrate offtake agreement and separate ore tolling agreement with Glencore. The two companies have worked in partnership for the past five years at Ernest Henry, which commenced operations as an open pit mine in 1998, before transitioning to an underground operation in 2011. And scrolling down, we have a quote from Gary Nagel, Glencore CEO. And he said in a press release, quote, Evolution has been a strong partner in the Ernest Henry mine for five years. They share our way of working and commitment to operating responsibly across all aspects of the business. And Evolution's executive chairman, Jake Klein, said, quote, We are proud that it will once again be 100% Australian owned. The acquisition is consistent with our strategy, materially improves the quality of our portfolio, and delivers both strong cash flow and mine life extension. So read all about it at northernminer.com. 
Just look for the Ernest Henry Mine. I don't know how they got the name for that mine, but perhaps time for a rebrand. But anyway, no all good over there. Continuing on, EPA issues draft Florence Underground Injection Control Permit decision. Now, this is by Henry Lazenby. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has issued a draft decision on the underground injection control permit required for Tosico Mines to build a commercial-scale solution copper mining operation at Florence, Arizona. Now, I don't think this is the first time Tosico has run into a little bit of controversy with their mining practice, and I think they have a little bit here. I've seen the locals aren't thrilled, at least some of them aren't thrilled about Tosico's plans here. In a press release issued on November 22nd, Tosico said its project technical team would complete a review of the permit wording within the two-week allotted time frame following which the EPA is expected to commence a public comment period, probably only in the new year. Tosico President Stuart McDonald said detailed engineering and procurement activities were well advanced, placing the company ready to start construction of the commercial facility immediately upon receiving the final. So the company will be ready if the permit is delivered. The company expected the draft decision by June before the timeline slipped to sometime in the third quarter. Okay, and we have a quote. From Stuart McDonald, SECO president, quote, the Florence Copper Project will have one of the smallest environmental footprints of any copper mine in the world. And it says here, the Vancouver-based miner plans to inject sulfuric acid and water deep underground to extract the already naturally broken up mineral deposit, a process that some erroneously compare to oil field fracking. Uranium miners in rural Australia and the U.S. have used the method for decades, but in-situ leaching has rarely been applied to copper mining. Worried about potential groundwater contamination, officials in Florence, Arizona have tried and failed to block DeSico's project for almost a decade. An appeals court earlier this year put an end to the town's legal obstructions, which included an attempt to take DeSico's land via eminent domain. You know, it doesn't appear that DeSico has the social license. You know, they may have all the legal license, but if you don't have the social license, you're probably going to keep running into problems. Anyway, so kind of an interesting development there in Arizona. This is from the Global Mining Symposium. I did want to tackle this one. Making mining cool to attract new talent. This is by Northern Miner staff. And uh, if you ask Rob McEwen... Chairman and Chief Owner of McEwen Mining, what needs to happen for the industry to attract young people and present a career in mining as cool? The answer is pretty simple. Quote, we need the public to start doing the math. End quote. McEwen said at the Northern Miners Q4 Global Mining Symposium this week. Quote, we have to calculate how much metal is needed to build the electric vehicles and the wind turbines and solar cells that are required to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and limit temperature increases to one and a half degrees. The industry has to, quote, make the link for people because we're not going to get there without a lot of metals. So Rob McEwen thinks we need to focus as an industry on the environment. And I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, look at the uranium industry, how successful their campaign to say, hey, we're the solution to greenhouse gas emissions. I kind of think that's been a pretty powerful argument, which has actually changed the minds, I think, of many people out there. I've talked to normal, regular people that aren't particularly, you know, savvy in mining and financial markets, and they're actually quite receptive to nuclear, the average person, whereas 10 years ago, generally these same people would not at all be receptive. So pretty interesting. We also have more here. Uh, we have Professor Aaron Bobicki, an associate professor of mineral processing at the University of Alberta's Department of Chemical and Materials Engineering. And she views working in the industry as an opportunity to make a big difference in the world. Quote, how do we extract critical metals more efficiently? How do we use less water and energy? How do we reduce our impact on the environment? This opportunity to make a big difference, quote, is only going to get larger as we move towards electrification and decarbonization. So this is a fascinating time to be working in the industry, she said. For McEwen, the allure has always been working in an industry that, as he puts it, quote, is shaping modern civilization and is, quote, what first attracted me to become involved in the investment side of the industry. Well, quite noble of Rob McEwen. I mean, I got into this industry for the gains initially. I saw opportunity potentially to get rich quick on these junior mining stocks. But 
Yes, Rob McEwen was more into shaping modern civilization. To his credit, quote, although there are a lot of young graduates jumping into the investment banking industry or cryptocurrencies, there are a lot of them jumping into the mining industry too. And if you want to be involved in shaping the future, the mining industry is a great place to start. Well, this is definitely against the conventional wisdom. I mean, I would say if you want to shape the future, you're probably going into crypto. Uh, not to be too provocative, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I mean, this is definitely, I think Rob McEwen is being quite provocative here. I mean, if you want to be involved in shaping the future, the mining industry is a great place to start. I mean, I think we see his rationale, but I don't think people are thinking this way at all. And I don't think, I, I just hear of the problems that the mining industry has in attracting young talent, not that they're jumping into the mining industry to shape the future of civilization. But that's just my two cents on this. According to Professor Bobicki, the key to attracting a new and diverse range of talent into the industry is to, quote, create a variety of opportunities for working with new technologies such as drones or robotics and to innovate by offering exciting new opportunities for lawyers, investors, mechanical engineers, and artists. You know, there is an opportunity there. Like, I don't see why mining companies don't have artist residencies. I have run into many artists, like at least a couple, in Berlin here, who are excited about open pit minings and just they like the visuals. They just find it interesting. And so I'm sure there'd be a lot of takers. You get some pretty serious people. Uh, you know, how cool would that be, having a resident artist at your open pit mine? I think that's good for... Uh, that's good PR. That's good for just reaching out to society. Just a thought there. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, she says the mining industry, quote, also needs to step up and offer remote or hybrid working environments and make people aware that these opportunities exist so we can pull in the talent we need to drive the industry in the direction it needs to go. Absolutely. If you want to attract young talent, I mean, everybody that I know, my age and below, even I think older, but I, they all want the hybrid, if not the remote working. And there's a lot of movement just anecdotally from people I know who are starting to make moves in their employment. It's quite interesting. You know, and as far as this whole employment, we were talking about wage inflation earlier. And I watched a lecture series on the Black Death. And I think it was 1347 to 1351 or 1349, 51. There's a couple of years where it was really bad. And afterwards, there was a huge inflation f for workers. Uh, all those, uh, you know, serfs that were working, tilling the fields, a lot of them left. And the lords and the people that ran those properties apparently had to pay much more for these workers. And it's seen as a seminal event in economic history. So I don't know if the Fed is factoring that in, and I don't know if like a loosening or a tightening or anything is going to change the fact that people are reassessing their lives in the face of a fatal disease, of a plague. That's what's going on. So I don't know what the Fed can do about that. So good luck with solving wage inflation. Uh, you know, and I think it's questionable that that should even be solved to begin with. But we've already discussed that. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on November 23rd, gold is trading at $1,797.12 per ounce. That is $67 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.90 per ounce. That is $1.40 lower than last week. Platinum is at $1,004.60 per ounce. That is $81 lower. And palladium is trading at $1,912.05 per ounce. And that is $198 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.36 per pound. That is 11 cents lower. Aluminum is trading a penny higher at $1.21 per pound. Lead is 7 cents lower at $1.01 per pound. 
Nickel is six cents higher at nine dollars and six cents per pound. Tin breaks eighteen dollars at eighteen dollars and three cents per pound. That is twenty-seven cents higher than last week. Cobalt is also higher at twenty-seven dollars and sixty-seven cents per pound. That is eighty-two cents higher than last week. And zinc is four cents lower at a dollar forty-six per pound. What do we see? A slight dip in the precious metals. And industrial metals really on pause, some higher, some lower, basically consolidating. Nickel at 906, tin at 1803, and cobalt at 2767, and zinc also being pretty high at $1.46. So industrial metals remain elevated. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Fish and Uranium President and CEO Ross McIlroy in conversation with Northern Miner multimedia producer and reporter Henry Lazenby, and they go in-depth into Fish and Uranium's Patterson Lake South project and the Three Arrows deposit and the outlook on uranium and how it's affecting Fission's business. So very interesting interview, particularly for you uranium bulls out there. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Lesenby, the Northern Miners Multimedia Producer. Joining me today is Ross McElroy, President and CEO of Fission Uranium with the TSX symbol FCU. Welcome, Ross. It's good to have you here. It's great to be here. Uh, looking forward to our discussion. So let's throw it back about a decade. You know, the uranium price has been in the doldrums since the Fukushima disaster of 2011 in Japan leaving spot prices crawling steadily lower and sideways below 50 US dollars a pound since 2015, more or less. For the benefit of our listeners, would you please remind us where your flagship Patterson Lake South project is and what it entails as it stands today? Sure. So the Patterson Lake South project is located in the province of Saskatchewan, on the southwest side of the Athabasca Basin. So basically sits right uh, almost dead center in Canada. You know, the Athabasca Basin, just for some context, is an extremely important supplier of, of uranium to the world, has been for decades and, you know, continues to be so. So, you know, we're another discovery in a, in a phenomenal chain of, you know, uh, high grade deposits that the Athabasca Basin is, is famous for. We're a little bit unique in that we're in the southwest side where up until our discovery back in 2012 of the Triple R deposit, it's been a virtually an underexplored or non-explored area. And I think that, you know, the general consensus was that there may not be uranium there similar to what you have on the eastern side of the basin. Well, that's completely changed now with the discovery of our Triple R and for that matter, next gen and the Aero deposit, you know, with these with these uh, deposits, we're seeing grade and size every bit as good as we've seen on the on the eastern side of the basin. So I might conclude with saying that I think that this is where the future of mine development is in the in the Athabasca Basin is the southwest corner. I think keep your eye on that area. That will be the key producer of the next generation of mines in in the Athabasca Basin. So the company completed a pre-feasibility study on the project in 2019. Could you just uh, briefly remind us about the highlight key points there and how that sets up the project uh, in combination with your latest winter and summer drill programs to contribute to your feasibility study, which is underway? Sure. Well, the, the Triple R deposit is 100% basement-hosted near-surface high-grade uranium deposit. Why the basement part is important is because the basement's much more competent rock. You know, the history of mining in the Athabasca Basin's been typically at the unconformity. The unconformity is right at the base of the Athabasca sandstone and the basement rock, and it's at that interface where a a number of the high-grade deposits are developed. The, The problem with that is there's some technical challenges because the rock conditions that unconformity tend to be, uh, you know, very soft and prone to flooding and, you know, and other other mining issues. Basement rock is much more competent 
and we're fortunate that we are 100% in basement rock and we're near surface. So that's what really sets this project apart. The PFS study that we did shows that we'll develop the triple R deposit as an underground mine, but near surface mineralization starting at 50 meters below. But because it'll be underground, we'll access it by a decline through the overburden. And once we hit the bedrock, that's where the ore sits. So there'll be no disruption of Patterson Lake itself. It will be accessing the ore zone from the land with a decline through the overburden and then in, into the bedrock. You know, the, the pre-feasibility was completed in 2019. Very robust economics, you know, from every metric, it, it's, a, it's an absolute world-class asset. There's still a lot of room to grow. And so the, the drilling that we completed here in 2021, we tested on the 780 zone, which is the main part of the deposit. And that's the one that sits in the pre-feasibility. That's the, you know, the, the guts of the pre-feasibility study. We did do some drilling this winter uh, with 20 holes into the 780 with the aim to convert approximately four to five million pounds of uranium that's currently inferred and outside of the economic study, bring that into the resource. But I think importantly too, we tested the 840 West zone with the aim that we'll be able to bring it also into the feasibility study resource into the economic category. And that's why we put in 25 holes into the R840. We're still waiting on assays. But if we're successful, then the R840 zone has the potential to also be part of the economic mine plan as we go forward through feasibility. So it's been a really active year, a lot of drilling, a lot of work, but we're uh, well into the feasibility study now and um, you know, quite pleased with the results so far. So can you just uh, remind our listeners, uh, what does the current resource base entail? And uh, so anything that might be forthcoming from 840 looks to expand upon. Yeah, the indicated resource that was used in the pre-feasibility study was uh, about 100 million pounds. And if we're able to bring in the 840, we, we know from a resource perspective, an inferred resource, that it has 15 million pounds. So if we're successful at, at our conversion from the inferred to indicated and the 840 can bring it over, that's an increase of roughly 15% right there to the, to the economic resource. And likewise on the 780 drilling that we did, um, we'll be able to add a, another five to 10% depending on, on how that shows out. So potentially the drilling that we've done in 2021, I think has, you know, might be able to add 20% or so to the to the current resource. And what that will give us is increased mine life. From what we've seen in the pre-feasibility study, we uh, started at seven years. You know, so this will be additional material that could basically extend the mine life. What I'm looking for is aiming towards uh, nine to 10 years of mine life. I think that's what we'd like to see at the feasibility study. Right. Well, a key takeaway for me is the continued exploration momentum that you are demonstrating there. Yes. yes. So uh, let's just quickly consider the larger property. Um, Patterson Lake uh, comprises a, a really large land package. Do you have any regional prospects that are a priority at this point, or is that more of the upside that you reserve for later in the project's life? You know, it's a great question. We do have a very large land package. It is extremely prospective. Just going back to looking at the potential of, of the area, there's uh, probably about 200 kilometers of conductors. It's all these EM conductors that, you know, that this is what geologists love. And these are your, your test horizons that, that you have. Each one of them has the potential to host, you know, a deposit scale um, occurrence of mineralization. So we've barely begun to systematically test the rest of the property. We were so successful early on when we first started exploring the Patterson Lake South property back in, you know, 2011, 2012, we quickly honed into what's now called the triple R deposit. So we still have a great number of exploration targets on the property. And I think as we're seeing improvement in the uranium sector, you know, we'll, we'll probably have another look at, at doing some exploration in the near term on the rest of the property. But our uh, eye is really on the, the, you know, we're keeping our goal as moving the feasibility uh, study forward. So, you know, maybe we'll be able to, to, to work both things at the same time. But the aim right now for me is getting the feasibility, 
moving it forward uh, and all the permitting and, and other elements that, that go in, you know, with, with getting the triple R deposit closer to production. But, you know, I, I'd be quite excited to uh, to start doing some exploration on the rest of the property as well. And we have the team and the, and the property to do it. I can imagine you're keen to get out there again. So let's talk about the catalysts for the company and their associated timelines towards achieving them, please. Sure. The first goal for us was to raise some money. Um, you know, we over the last uh, 12 months, you know, we've been able to raise around $50 million. You know, that's given us a, a, a good start now. And, and I think we're, you know, sufficiently funded to take, you know, go through the whole feasibility study. Once we had money, then I could start building a team. And so, you know, I hired a, a VP of project development back in January. That's Gary Haywood. So he's our new project lead. He's a, a mine engineer with a wealth of experience in the Athabasca Basin, ex-Cameco, ex-Macarthur River uh, engineer. So Gary is going to be our, our lead as we move the project forward through feasibility. And so, I, you know, I mean, it was really all about building the, the team and getting us, uh, getting us moving forward. So I think we've accomplished that in the last 12 months. You know, it, it's busy. We recently signed Tetra Tech uh, to be our lead engineering consultant. Um, they'll be the author of the feasibility study. And timelines, uh, we expect to complete the feasibility by the end of 2022. So that's the phase we're in right now. Parallel with that, of course, is all the permitting and agreements that will have to do with the Northern communities and the First Nations and the Métis. So we have teams that are already working in that capacity as well. So there's a lot of moving parts, but you know, I think we're very well um, you know, established here with, with, with a great team with you know, great depth of experience. And of course, the rising uranium uh, sector, you know, it's, it's a good place to be right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a great segue into my next question um, about the general uranium price uh, and the market. And how do you see that, you know, playing out at the moment, you know, as relating to the project? Well, you know, we've seen the, the price of the commodity. It, it had been skipping at some pretty low prices in the 20s and 30s for you know, the last several years. Last fall, in the fall of 2020, we really started to see a shift. And I think it's you know, part of the global emphasis on clean, green energy and uh, the recognition that nuclear is such an important part of that of that component. You know, it, it's a clean energy and uh, it's really the only viable alternative to, you know, fossil fuels in, in a number of cases, certainly for, for base load power. So the sector has certainly improved an awful lot in the last, uh, we'll call it 12 months or so. The prices, we've seen spot prices over $50. It's currently around 40, but it's a lot healthier than it, than it was just uh, 12 short months ago. I think that the overall path is certainly higher than that. You know, I think we're expecting much stronger and sustained, consistent, higher uranium prices going forward. So, you know, it's the right sector to be in. And I think that our project at the development stage that we're at, feasibility, you know, you probably couldn't pick, a, you know, a, a better timing, I suppose, to have a project like this that we're marching forward through development because we see the next several years out as being extremely strong and bullish for the uranium sector and having a world-class project like Triple R that will, you know, we expect it to be one of the lowest uh, operating cost mines in the world. You know, it's a, it's a nice place to be. I certainly see there's merit in being interested in Patterson Lake South at the moment. Is there any other important point that we should talk about that I've not asked you about specifically? I think we've touched on uh, on most of it. I, I just, you know, I would emphasize the fact that we're, uh, you know, we've got a superior project. We've got a really strong team. You know, we've got money in the, in the treasury and, uh, you know, and we know the, the path forward and, and we're marching on towards. So, that all coupled with a stronger uranium sector overall, I think that it's time for uh, people to really pay attention to the uranium sector in general. And uh, and I would think that we we certainly have a, a you know one of the best projects out there. Before I let you go, let's just quickly talk about the company's uh, share structure and also key shareholders and and how that is positioned to help the company forward. 
You know, over the last, again, 12 months since we started to raise money, we've also increased our institutional ownership as well. So, you know, maybe in the summer of 2020, we were well below 10% institutional ownership. We're now uh, almost a quarter of our shares are, are owned by institutional investment groups. We also have a strategic partner with uh, China General Nuclear. Uh, they have a 15% holding in the company and retail side is, uh, is about 60%. So that's sort of the breakdown of where we are. We're a much more balanced company now with, with institutional and retail ownership, I suppose, than we might have been a couple of years ago. As I mentioned, we have about $50 million in the treasury and the market cap right now is somewhere between 500 and $600 million Canadian. All right, excellent stuff. Thank you very much for your time. That was Ross McElroy, President and CEO of Fission Uranium. There we have it, another episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Stay tuned for very exciting feature presentations from the Global Mining Symposium. We got Mark Bristow, we got World Class Rare Earths Panel, and more. So do stay tuned. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Send it to your friends. Until next week, take care.